Good morning. As is our custom, we are working through the New City Catechism. Uh, last week, the question is, what is faith in Christ? And this week, uh, it's question 31, what do we believe by true faith? So I will read the question, and together we will read the answer. You will recognize the answer. It is the Apostles' Creed. So, what do we believe by true faith? Everything taught to us in the gospel. The Apostles' Creed expresses what we believe in these words. We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whom we will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Join me in prayer. Father, I thank you for the gospel that we affirm in this creed. I pray that we would not see the creed as a bunker where we hunker down, for these truths have a universal impact and application. Rather, from these truths, they are a castle from where we can look out and see the vastness of your blessing and find hope in the life and advancement of your kingdom. Lord, help us to be staggered by the realities that we have just recited, that a triune God has moved toward a rebellious people and done everything necessary so that we might be restored to fellowship with you. Father, help us to see you better and to understand ourselves better, to understand that we are created in your image. We've rebelled against your righteous rule, and through the death of your Son, we are restored to fellowship. We are adopted into your family and are even now in all the confusion and struggles in this life being transformed into the likeness of your Son, Jesus. Lord, your people have recited these words together for thousands of years, and so we join with them, affirming the truth, nurturing our hope of the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Lord, the life we live now is one of anticipation. We have received much. We look forward to receiving more. Father, give us hearts that hope and not merely endure. We have need of endurance. We have real burdens. There are many needs among us, physical, financial, emotional. I pray that in each of these situations, Lord, we would look to you for help and that we would not give up in hoping in your sovereign goodness for us. Lord, Many, many people have suffered and many have died because of the coronavirus. And Lord, that's increases in places. 
We thank you for the grace you are allowing in treatments and protections to be effective in so many cases. And we pray for your continued mercy and that we in the world will be humbled to see that you are God in all of this. Father, we pray as the school year is starting soon here for both kids and college students, Lord, be giving those returning wisdom. And Lord, I pray that uh, as we <laughs> they learn truths, they would record, see and trace them up that it is from you. And Lord, they would learn more than facts. They would learn wisdom. Lord, for the rulers that uh, exist and that you have put in place at all levels, national, regional, and local, Father, would you bless them, give them wisdom from beyond their own, that they would make good decisions, and that, Father, we might live quiet and peaceable lives. Father, for your people gathered in churches all over the world and even locally, we pray that you would be honored uh, in these gatherings and that, Lord, uh, you would be nourishing the hearts of, of these people. For our own church, Lord, we thank you uh, for what you are doing here. And even in this resting month, I thank you that you are not resting in this month. You are continually at work. I pray that uh, you would be guiding us in the activities, pray for the leadership and uh, their efforts in various directions. Lord, would you help them uh, because you've promised to help them. Lord, uh, now as Kevin comes, I pray that uh, you would be guiding uh, what he says and opening our ears to what is true and honoring to you. Lord, we do ask all these things. In the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Three to fives. Y'all can head out the back with the Edies. Oh, Thompsons. All right. All right. Our scripture for today is going to be from Zephaniah. Uh, it's going to be verse, um, chapter 1, verse 12, chapter 2, verse 3, and chapter 3, verse 17. This is the word of God. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt you over with loud singing. The flowers fade. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and the word of our Lord stands forever. All right. Thanks, Tyler, and thanks, Lloyd. Um, now, when it comes to the, the kings of Israel, uh, there's not a whole lot of good ones. Most of them were bad. 
most of them turned away from the Lord, uh, but there were some that were actually that were actually pretty okay. They, they, they were good, and it was said of them, they, they, they quote, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of David. Now, one of the worst kings was a guy named Manasseh. Manasseh became king when he was 12, and he reigned for 55 years. That's a pretty long time. And, and he was one of the all-time worst, and he led Israel astray really bad. Uh, but eventually he died, and his son Ammon took over. Uh, and Ammon only reigned for, for two years before there was a conspiracy that, that took him out. And after that, Ammon's son became king. And, and his son, when he became his name is Josiah. And when he became king, he was eight years old. Only eight years old when he became king. But he was one of the good guys. He was one of the good kings. And it was said of him that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David. And, and what Josiah is best known for is, is something that he found. Many of you know the story. But, but as king in his 20s, so later on as, as he was king, uh, he had given orders to repair the temple. And while they were in there making repairs to the temple, getting things set, they found the book of the law, the, the, the books of Moses. And after they, they found the books, they read it, and it was not good news for the people of Israel. Josiah realized that they had turned from God. You know, all these awful years under the reign of, of, of Manasseh, he had, he had turned them away from the Lord. And everything that he was, he was seeing and looking at was that judgment was coming on them. And in 2 Kings 22.11, we read about how Josiah responded to this discovery of, of the word of God that was telling them it was about to get really bad for them. So here's what we read in 2 Kings chapter 22. It says, When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah, the priest, and Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, and Akbor, the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan, the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. Do according to all that is written concerning us. So Josiah humbles himself, he seeks the Lord, and he brings about reforms in Judah. And this is Josiah's legacy. This is what he's known for. He found the book and he made reforms. And because of this, the Lord relented of the disaster that he was going to put on Judah during Josiah's time. And now you might be wondering, why are we talking about Josiah? Because we just read about Zephaniah. Well, if you look at Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1, we read this. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So if Josiah was the king making reforms, Zephaniah was the, product, was, was the prophetic voice during the time of these reforms were being made. And, and so what I want to do is, is, is kind of follow along three, three things that Zephaniah pushes out there in his message. Uh, the first thing he does is he diagnoses the problem. The, the second thing we're going to look at is him giving a solution to the problem. And then third, I want to talk about the motivation. So, uh, so first, let's look at the problem. That was a text that was read in chapter 1, verse 12. 
when the, the Lord says, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. So who is it that the Lord is going to search out with lamps to punish? Those who are complacent and who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. That is the type of person that Yahweh is searching for in order to punish. Those who are complacent. And, wh and what does it mean to be complacent? We don't want to be complacent, right? Well, if you look at Webster, he defined it this way. He said it's marked by self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by unawareness of actual dangers or deficiencies. De deficiencies. These self-satisfaction accompanied by unawareness. Now, that's Webster, which is helpful. But if we get our de definition on this text, it seems to be something like this. It's the person who doesn't believe that God really does anything. That the world just kind of moves along and God doesn't really do much good or bad. What is is just what is. And, and, and so we think about some people are, are, are really wicked and they do really bad things that make our jaws drop and we don't get that. But right up there with these wicked folks are folks who just don't think God really does anything. They might consider this, themselves Christians, but for all practical purposes, they might be more agnostic. Maybe God's there. Maybe he's not. Either way, I'm not going to let the idea of God bother me much. There's not much desire to pray because prayer doesn't really work anyway. No need to saturate yourself with the Bible. All that doesn't matter much anyway. And, and here's some, some honest thoughts that people might struggle with, and at least I do some. I just wonder sometimes with prayer. I've really wrestled with it. Y'all heard me recommend A Praying Life. It's a book that kind of helped me work through some cynicism I have with prayer sometimes. But I just wonder if it makes a difference. I, if, if I pray and, and if things happen, I, I wonder if it was because of prayer or if it would have happened anyway. Like, let's just say, for example, I lose my keys. happens often. And I pray, Lord, help me find my keys and let's say some time goes by and I can't find them the Lord's didn't hear me I, I asked for a pretty simple thing just to find my keys and it didn't happen let's say the other side let's say I find them I was going to find them anyway I mean I couldn't have gone too far without my keys right and so I have this cynicism that works in me that God's not really doing anything good or bad and even when there's results or, or a lack of results either way I'm slight I can slice it towards God's not really doing anything. That was just going to happen anyway, and it doesn't really matter. Now, that example is about losing keys. Superficial. It's not a, it's not a big deal. Nobody's losing sleep over not, not finding their keys. It's usually a moment of frustration when you're in a hurry. But there's other things that we've struggled with and that we've taken our appeal to God with, and it's just nothing. It just it seems like life just kind of carries on and we wonder why even pray and and we can't help sometimes but let our experience begin to form our theology rather than let the word of God form our theology and so we come to these conclusions about what we believe about God and what's dangerous is we don't even know we're forming these conclusions by experience rather than by the word of God and so here's the, the, the false belief that creeps into our mind without us knowing it, but becomes pretty solid. It is that God is mostly inactive. 
He's mostly not at work. And especially in our day in, day out, mundane, uneventful lives, and, and perhaps they feel painfully normal and predictable. But a big part of what we learn from the scriptures is that God is constantly at work, as Lloyd just mentioned in this prayer. But, but when the way he works, and even we see this in the scriptures, the way he works, usually it's it's without us being able to see. There's not these just real tangible things where it's just always popping out. Sometimes it is, and praise the Lord, but sometimes it's more hidden. And the way that he works, God's people are not privy to it. I'm sure when Joseph was sold into slavery, the Lord seemed silent. I, I bet at some point Joseph said, hey, Lord, please don't let me be sold into slavery. Please, And then a series of terrible events happened, and it seemed like the Lord was silent. But we all know, because we know the story, that God was working. He was putting him in Egypt, and he was going to raise him up to power. God was most certainly at work when Joseph might have testified at that time. Those were the silent years. Those were the years God didn't hear me. It was like, no, you just didn't know what God was doing, so he seemed silent. Then you have Lazarus die. Mary and Martha praying for him to be well, praying for Jesus to come back. He could have made it back, and he seemed silent. God was at work. He was about to raise Lazarus up. Christians in the first century, dying, persecuted, slaughtered. But God must have seemed silent. But look, we know because we have a collection of all these stories that span thousands of years, is that even when God seems utterly silent to God's people, he is at work. And this is what Peter wrote to the people who were being persecuted in his day. In 2 Peter 3, he says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. So you have to understand that the way that they were seeing things is they were seeing it on a linear timeline, and God is outside of that. One day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like one day. They were wanting Jesus <clears throat> to come back. But the Lord was being patient, warning, uh, wanting others to reach repentance. So their agenda, Lord come back in the misery. But what the Lord was doing was he was being patient, wanting others to reach repentance. And we become complacent when we believe that God is inactive, when God doesn't really do much. And you think back to the times before Josiah, they didn't have the word of God. They didn't have the And so they just kind of had the settled conclusion that God's not really doing anything. So the next time the idea that God doesn't really do anything, good or bad, begins to creep into your mind, as I imagine it will, we need to capture that thought and fight against it. It's not true God is always at work, and you are putting an infinite and transcendent God under your timeline based on your finite metric system. And we have to operate. So, so, so we have to operate in this linear time. We operate under that. God does not operate that way. He's outside of time. So if, if, that's, the problem, if, if that's the problem with Zephaniah's day, that they become complacent, that they've got this idea that God is just kind of disconnected, not really doing anything. That's the problem. What's the solution? Brings me to my second point. And let's look at chapter 2, verse 3. Zephaniah says, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden 
on the day of the anger of the Lord. So the solution is to seek the Lord, do his commands, and seek humility. The solution to the problem of complacency is to live as if God is there and working. And if he is there and working, then you should seek him, do his commands, and be humble. This is repentance. This is them to, to turn uh, to, to turn away from the, the wrath of the Lord. And, and we see this, that phrase in 2, 3, we, we see it echoed a few different different places in Scripture. One um, particularly well-known place is in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. You've heard this before. It says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and hear and heal their land. And so there's, there's parallels in Zephaniah 2 and 2 Chronicles 7. And I, I want to share them with you real quick. So one says, humble yourselves. The other says, seek humility. One says, pray. The other says, seek the Lord. One says, turn from your wicked ways. The other says, do his just commands. So, so there's, there's three things, if you were to put them all together, that the Lord is really pushing out. And, and this is what it looks like to be faithful to the Lord. It's doing these three things. It's being humble, praying, and repenting. That word repent captures both turn from your wicked ways and do his just commands. And so I want to I highlight on these three things. Because these are the three things. This is what faithfulness looks like. If someone is living a faithful life before the Lord, these three things are in the mix. So first, we should humble ourselves. Or, or to put it another way, we should recognize our pride and turn from it. C.S. Lewis said this about pride. He said, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. It's almost like pride is like the gateway drug to all other forms of sin. And, and I would say that the, the, the way you get there is by simply forgetting God. Thinking, and, and we get to the place where we just simply forget God by thinking he doesn't do good or evil. He doesn't do anything. He's not at work. It's, it's, it's almost as if he's not even there. And I live my life as if he's not even there. And that's how we become complacent, believing he does neither good nor bad. And that leads us to pride. Second, we should seek the Lord in prayer. If pride makes us imagine a world that God, where God doesn't do anything, then prayer wakes us up from that spell. Paul Miller in A Praying Life, I just mentioned, said this. He said, prayer is a moment of incarnation. God with us. God involved in the details of my life. Look. Sometimes we might struggle with the effectiveness of our prayers. We, we pray, we don't see something happening, but at least you're struggling with it. P perhaps we should consider that, that prayer, if nothing else, wakes us up to the idea that God is there, that he hears us. He is real, he is active, he hears me. Whether he works the way I want him to or not, he's there. And, and third, we should repent. This includes turning away from sin and doing his just commands. I think an important spiritual discipline in this is confessing sin. You know, a lot of times when we think about spiritual disciplines, we might think about Bible reading 
or prayer, which those are great things. We should do those things. But I think confessing sin should be right up there with it. And when we evaluate how we're doing on a spiritual level, confessing sin should be in the mix. How have you been doing confessing? Maybe you're reading your Bible. Great. Maybe you're doing some prayer. Great. How are you doing confessing real sin to real people and confessing it to God? When was the last time you articulated to God your sin and just confessed it? When was the last time you confessed your sin to another person, to a person you hurt? St. Augustine said that the confession of evil works is the beginning of good works. And look, there's a sense where secret sin can creep into our life. And when it does, it doesn't just stay there. It grows in the dark. And if we're not confessing sin, then, then dark sin is growing within, and its results are going to be chaos and misery. So, if complacency is that idea that God's not really doing anything, if, if we, we have this mindset that God does neither good nor ill, and we can all drift towards this kind of complacency, what I'm saying, what I think Zephaniah is saying, what wakes us up from that is humbling ourselves, prayer, and repentance. That's what can wake us up out of this spell that God is inactive. And if your day is marked by these three things, then you might begin to actually notice that God is at work and that the idea that God does neither good nor evil is a false belief. And look, as, as Christians, we believe that God created the world. We don't believe the Big Bang Theory, right? So we say, no, God created the world. We don't believe in the random explosion that made things kind of randomly fall into chance. We reject that idea. And what I'm saying is right alongside where we reject the Big Bang, we should reject the idea, God's not doing anything. That's wrong. That's a, that's a, that's a untrue statement. And the way we come out of that spell that we all fall into is humbling ourselves, prayer, and repentance. And look, in, in, in 2, 3, saying where God might... Perhaps uh, you might be hidden in the day of, of his wrath. This is really what conversion is. But when a person becomes a Christian, they come to terms that there is a God, and they are guilty before this God. And they humble themselves in that sense. They see that they are sinners before a holy God, and they turn to, they seek the Lord, and they hear the gospel that Christ came as the sacrifice for sinners. And you can hide from the wrath of God when you are in Christ, that all God's wrath was spent on him, and then you can live a new life in Christ, hidden from the wrath of God. So there's that, and then we have the, the motivation. What motivates us to turn, to, to humble ourselves, uh, to pray, uh, and to seek God's face, to repent. So let's talk a little bit about motivation. In uh, chapter three seventeen, we read this. It says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So we're, we're all motivated in different ways. Sometimes we're motivated by shame. Actually, all of us to some degree are motivated by shame. Um, we don't want to feel embarrassed. We don't want to feel like fools. Uh, and shame, I found, can be a, a great motivator. And it'll work, maybe, for a time. 
but it's laced with anxiety and it almost always has an expiration date. It just doesn't take you the distance. But we are at our best, and you know this even intuitively, we are at our best when we are operating out of love. And when I say we're operating out of love, I don't even mean that we love someone. I mean when we're operating out of being loved. That is when you have felt the most free, the most like yourself, that is when you have been at your best, not when you felt shame or pressure, but when you felt like you were beloved. That was when you were, that is when we are always at our best. And especially when that, when that is a kind of love and affection coming towards us that we don't deserve, that feels a little bit out of our league. You know, there was a guy, I remember, I don't want to give too many details of the story. I, I had a friend in high school. Um, something happened. A girl liked him that was remarkably out of his league. And I'm not even being mean. It was just like he had no business with this girl liking him. And she, for some crazy reason, did. And he was done. We didn't see him until she dumped him, right? And it was because, and we were like, well, hey, don't blame him. I mean, this is, he's kind of peaking early, right? So too bad for this guy. But, but he was out of his mind. And, and we all kind of accepted. We were like, yeah, can't blame him. When you, when you have a, a kind of affection directed towards you that is out of your league that you don't deserve, it is reorienting to you. And have you thought about why you love God? And when you think about why you love God, you can, there's a lot of good answers for that. You, I mean, you can just look at creation. You can look at the cross. There's, there's a lot of things that you can say that you love about God. But let me say this. If, if you kind of have a notion that you love God and you kind of see that as like a good thing about yourself and, and maybe you think I love God because I have my priorities straight that's not great if you think that, that, that you love God because you have good priorities that's not a great even though it might be true it's not a great reason for why you love God and, and if you have something like that then you have not begun to love God the way you should and the way you could there are a lot of reasons we should love God, but perhaps the best one comes from 1 John 4.19. You know this. We love, Dr. finish this for me, because he first loved us. Paul said something somewhere in 2 Corinthians 5.14. He said he's controlled by something. He said he's controlled by the love of God. And when it comes to your walk with God, your faithfulness, your obedience, your repentance, prayer, whatever you want to put, what is it that motivates you? Whatever it is you're doing in, in the Christian life, what is it that's pushing you there? Could be shame. Could be pressure. Could be trying to, uh, to, to reach the full potential uh, of your life. Could be trying to avoid bad things. Don't want to be punished by God. Or I kind of believe there's a, you reap what you sow, so I'm trying to avoid that. Uh, maybe an attempt to, to avoid feeling guilty, hate feeling guilty. Might be to, to live up to somebody else's uh, expectations, maybe family, friends, or community, or whatever. Well, what I would like to do is I'd like to argue that the Scriptures teach that it is the love of God that should be our motivation. Not loving God, but God's love for us. And, and you might think that it should begin with our love for God, and it should only, but that's secondary. It's got to begin with God's love for us. That produces our love 
for God. And how is God's love for us described in Zephaniah 3 for his people? It is enthusiastic. It's not bitter. It involves him rejoicing over you with gladness. I think here of a child at Christmas time that rejoices is just giddy. It's Christmas Day, rejoicing with gladness. And I hope it don't come across as dishonoring God as compared to a child on Christmas. I'm trying to think of an image of rejoicing with gladness. <laughs> and sometimes when we have that picture, it almost seems undignified. But this, this is the picture we have of rejoicing over his people with gladness. It involves him quieting us with his love. And again, I'm thinking with a parent with a child saying, hey, they're there. You're going to be okay. I'm going to be with you. You're going to be fine. And it's quieting with his love. And then exulting over you with loud singing, bursting with joy to the, to the point it must be channeled into a song in order to feel the joy at its fullness. That is our God's disposition towards his people. He's not thinking, ah, oh, they did it again. These people are the worst. Look, we are the worst, and he dealt with it fully and completely at the cross. And so he is free to rejoice over his people to the fullest effect. And we need to get that burned into our hearts and minds. God's love for his people, the sin has been dealt with at the cross. And if you are not in Christ, it has not been dealt with. That's why we run to Christ and tell people come to find refuge in Christ and know the love of God in full display. And, and I just want to close sharing three things that I hope thrills your heart about God's love for you, for his people. In Ephesians 1.4, we read that in love, God predestined us for adoption. In love, he did that. And, and look, some people get kind of weird about this. And, and here's one of the reasons that, that some people can get kind of excited about this idea of being predestined in love. Here's what it means to me. I did not influence God's love for me. I find that to be great news. Because you know what that means on the other side? I can't influence it the other way. I did not earn it. I didn't deserve it. Therefore, I can't lose it. And secondly, that means that God's love for us is eternal. That means God's love for his people, his, his love for you and me. It didn't begin when we became Christians. It didn't even begin before we were, uh, it didn't even begin when we were born. And it didn't even begin when the world began. It began before the beginning of the world. And you can maybe even argue it's the reason God made the world to begin with. So he could show his love to his people. That's the kind of love we're talking about here. And, and finally, Romans 5, 8, we said that God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That means our sin does not affect God's love for us. This, and this is really just another way to say the first point, that it's uninfluenced by us, but it's worth being explicit that as much as we disappoint ourselves and get mad at ourselves and even hate ourselves, that sin is not affecting God in that way. He's dealt with it at the cross, and in spite of that, he came for us. He sent his son to die for us. So in summary, God's love for us is without our influence. It began not just before we were born, but before the world began, 
and there is nothing we can do to make it go away. And as if that wasn't enough, we know from Zephaniah 3 that his love for us isn't just one he tolerates. It is one that he is enthusiastic about. It makes his heart to sing. So then, in light of this great love that he has for us, may God help us to never be complacent to think that he doesn't act, that he doesn't do good or bad, but instead that we would always be focused on him, that we would humble ourselves, that we would pray that we would repent continually so that we can drink deeply in this great love that he has for us. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, how sweet it is to know our sin. We frustrate ourselves, disappoint ourselves, or perhaps even disgusted with ourselves at times. And, and it's because we've come to terms with our sin. And in some ways, those emotions aren't right. Those emotions aren't wrong and that they are awful. And you sent your son to pay the full penalty for those. And so now that we know that our sin has been dealt with on the cross and that does not change your affections for your people, would you help us to know and to see, to understand this great love that you have for your people? And would you have us to not operate out of shame or guilt or any other thing but help us to operate out of this great love for which you love us, and may that stir our affections to serve you. In Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. Can you stand and sing with me?